research shows that happier people are just better people, better people in the world, less likely to commit crimes, more likely to volunteer, better civic members of society, certainly better co-workers and absolutely better bosses. So figure out what makes you happy and then make that happen because everything will be better if you do. You're listening to the Woman of Value podcast. You are about to hear the story of a woman who is following her dreams and passions and creating positive change in the world. My guest today is Minda Zeblin. She is the author of Career Self-Care, Find Your Happiness, Success, and Fulfillment at Work. She writes the highly popular laid-back leader column for Inc.com, and her articles and workshops offer research-backed advice to help ambitious people get the most out of their careers and their lives. She's also the author or co-author of several books, most recently, The Geek Gap, She's the former president of the American Society of Journalists and Authors, and she lives in Snohomish, Washington. Welcome to the show, Minda. Well, thank you so much for having me. So tell us, what does Woman of Value mean to you? One of the things that I kind of dived into while I was writing the book was all the inequality that that we've always heard about between uh, how women are paid and how men are paid and there's a chapter about how to thrive in a world that is fundamentally unfair, which is unfortunately the world that we're stuck with. Um, But I did, as I was writing about this, I did a lot of thinking about all the work that women do that doesn't get accounted for in the economy, doesn't get accounted for even in companies uh, where women are monumentally more likely to do the emotional labor, the things that create the relationships at work, um, such as someone's leaving, planning their retirement party. Um, That job is almost never undertaken by a man. And any number of other things like that that cement the ties of people at work. And what we're seeing as we're looking at the great resignation and the switch to remote work, and now the switch perhaps back to work in the office is that relationships in the workplace are more important than anyone um, has ever really fully understood. And women are keeping all of that going Um, by choice, by habit, by cultural um, tradition. um, And when I find myself doing that kind of stuff myself, it's because I care about it. And I feel like if I don't do it, nobody will do it. And I care about it. So I want it to happen for whatever the reason. There's so much work that women do that is not recognized. And I think maybe one day, just as happened long ago in, I believe, Switzerland, I think one day we should all just stop just for 24 hours and let the world see what would happen if we did. So basically, if we stop, maybe people will take notice of the work that women do kind of almost unconsciously, you're saying. Yes. And, and maybe women ourselves would, because as you say, it's like almost unconscious. So, you know, if we, we took a day and said, okay, I'm not going to, um, you know, smooth over this argument between these two people and I'm not going to um, make sure that we've planned what we're having for dinner and all the other stuff like that, you know? So I don't know, perhaps that that wasn't, I don't know if that was the answer you were looking hey. for, but it was the one that came to mind for me. Yeah, I mean, there is no, this is the right answer. I love hearing whatever comes up for all of my guests. And this is certainly a take that I haven't heard before. 
And it's, it's something that I think most of us don't really think about. Recently, my grandson was in the hospital and my ex-husband said um, to my daughter, oh, take mom with you. She's really good at hospital stuff. Like, <laughs> and in our lives, I became really good at it because we had a sick child, but he just assumed that I'd be really good at it because he just did not want to do it. He was just like, I don't do this. And for me, it was never, it was never like a, a thing that I could decide not to do. That's my kid. Mm-hmm. He's born sick. I need to, I need to do whatever I can and step up and be a mom. I think we do a lot of things like cook the meals and plan the meals and plan the vacations and do those things that in our day to day, but you're saying also at work that there are a lot of things that, that are the tie that keep people together at work and create those relationships. Right. And people have, people have made that calculation for the unpaid work that, you know, unpaid labor. I mean, we, you have seen probably those calculations for the billions and billions of dollars worldwide of unpaid labor women do in the context of home and family. Um, but that also does exist at work. Um, and we don't think about it or talk about it as much, but it's part of the puzzle you know, we all look at why, um, you know, what's the glass ceiling made of? Why do women not advance in their careers the way men do? Um, why are there, you know, not women billionaires in the same way that there are men billionaires? Part of the answer, I think, is, is some of that. We burden ourselves with a lot of stuff. Some of that is probably hard to shake off, but at least being aware of it, I think, can get us in the direction of understanding our own value. Yeah. I'm wondering if just taking that day off is going to really raise the awareness. I, I, I know that you're, you're not being fully serious, that everybody just stops doing it and it's magically going to change and people will be recognized. But I think that there is a lot of movement in the direction of women and men having more open communication about the things that were taken for granted in the workplace And that includes men advocating for women's voices in the workplace. It includes just, you know, education around, hey, it's not a given that women are just going to sit there and be talked over or that women are just going to manage all the parties at work or, you know, whatever, whatever women's roles seem to be to men. I think there's an education piece and I'm wondering what you have to say about that. Yeah, I mean, I think there is. And I think it's, um, I, you know, and I think that education needs to happen um, both for men and for women. It's very fundamental and it's very ingrained, I think, in all of us. And you mentioned being talked over at meetings. Um, interestingly, one of the first group of people to bring this to light was women working in the White House, not you know under Donald Trump or any Republican president, but under Barack Obama, where you would think <laughs> probably the most progressive president we've had um, maybe ever. And you would think that in that work environment, if no other, women wouldn't have to fight this fight. And yet it's so deeply um, part of how women are in the world and how men are in the world, that they actually worked out this plan because what would happen is a woman would suggest something, the conversation would kind of not 
really take it into account. And then a little while later, a man would suggest the same thing and everybody would go, oh, wow, that's a really good idea. And then in the collective memory, it was his idea. And so what they did was they made an agreement among themselves that if some of the, one of them said something like that, the others would stop the conversation and make a point of recognizing her for having said it and said, oh yeah, that's a really great idea. And um, that, you know, that needs to happen. And it's extraordinarily important because uh, I recently read about some fairly recent research that people take on the aura of leadership and others recognize them as leaders as a function of how much they talk. As simple as that. Not even how smart whatever they're saying is, not even how true whatever they're saying is, unfortunately, but just the people who talk most are naturally instinctively seen as leaders by others and they get those leadership roles. And when you start putting those things together, then um, you can really start to see the immense number of things that kind of are in the way of women coming into their full value in the workplace. This is a really resonant point for me as a a person who used to be very, very quiet, I would have people repeat what I would say and then get the credit for it in school. And uh, I was just listening to a little clip of Susan Cain's TED Talk uh, when she was just publishing her book, Quiet. And she talked about how the people who were like extroverts, the ones who are louder, they generally are looked at as leaders. You know, and I think that quiet leadership is something that became much more talked about in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. Um, I, I personally feel like there's so many people who are quiet leaders who are able to really have powerful voices without being the loudest person in the room. But it does take some effort because people like Donald Trump, whose, whose voice was very you know, he was very certain of himself when he spoke. And a lot of people really believed all of his words because they sounded so important to people who were not listening very carefully. But um, just, um, I don't know if you've, you've uh, the introvert extrovert thing came up um, in your research and things that you've, you've studied in terms of leadership, but I would love to hear your take on that. Not as much as, as that. Uh, I've been really looking at you know, workplaces in general, less than the introvert extrovert thing. So I'm not sure that I can add a lot of value on that other than to say that I think, you know, some of it coming back to, to what we've been talking about, some of it has to do with who feels empowered to speak and who feels like it's their role to listen. And, um, you know, and it's worth asking yourself the question when you're in a board meeting or whatever, or a meeting, if the people who are doing all of the talking are somehow part of one group or look look like each other. Yeah, everybody's voice deserves to be heard and yes. <laughs> you need to have awareness around that. All right, let's go to your aha woman of value moment, the moment that, or it's usually not one moment, but it's, how did you get here? <laughs> how did you get to where you are today? I sort of had an aha moment in relation to this whole speaking thing or speaking up thing when I was, uh, then, and this is all that I was going to talk about, but um, when I was young, I went to, uh, I skipped my last year of high school and went to the special program that they had in New York City at the time that com supposedly combined the last year of high school and the first year of college. And um, when I look back on it, it, it was really much more strange than it seemed like at the time while I was doing it. But I had gone from being in one of the 
three or four smartest people in the class that I was in to suddenly being, you know, towards the middle or the lower part of the intellectual firepower that was in the room because of who I was with. And that was a big mental adjustment for me. But what I found was that in the, some of the classes that were, you know, about history or sociology, that where there was a lot of very lively discussion, that discussion was entirely dominated by the male students. I noticed it, I guess, because I was used to hearing my own voice and I was used to being in an environment where women spoke up more, I suppose. Um, but it bothered the heck out of me. So what I finally did was I started like really jumping in and really making sure that my voice was heard and maybe talking over people, I'm not sure, but really jumping in and making sure that, you know, my voice was heard. And at the end of the, the year, I was talking to someone and he said, it was a man who was also in that program. And he said something to the effect of, you know, gee, you're, you're a nicer person than I thought. I think of you as being, you know, very pushy and aggressive. And so I told him, well, I really noticed that women were not speaking up in any of these discussions and I didn't like it. So I just made sure to get my voice heard. And I kind of saw the light bulb go on, you know, behind his eyes, because I don't think, I don't think men notice. I don't think men notice when women aren't speaking. It's interesting whether they don't notice, but also this whole thing about being pushy and aggressive when mm -hmm. you have a voice, how many women are viewed as bossy pushy, negative, where men are not viewed that way for speaking up or pushing out, pushing their voice up to be able to be heard. Right. And if you don't do that, then you're not tough enough. You can't take it. You're not, you're not strong enough to be in a leadership position or to start a company or whatever. So it's, it's um, you know, an unwinnable situation. Um, the closest I've ever seen anyone to winning it was the Contenji Brown-Jackson hearings. I don't know if you um, watched any of that, but she managed to push back against every um, insulting and negative question that was thrown at her. And some of them were pretty bad with a smile on her face and with facts and not engaging stuff that she didn't need to engage. But it's really hard. I mean, you have to be an exceptional person to thread that needle, I think. It's really true. And I think that, I think we're getting closer than we were, but we still have a long way to go. And um, so what do you think are the, some of the solutions to the problem? Efforts like yours go a long way because women do need to understand our own value. I struggled with that a lot when I was writing the chapter about inequality, because I think a lot of us go through life not noticing it. And I think that's almost, you know, including me. One of my aha moments was very retroactive. Um, I kind of had it while I was writing the book back when I was in my 20s. Um, I was working for this company and I, my, my boyfriend at the time wanted to work there too. And I proposed that he be hired and um, he was hired and through a confluence of circumstances, not too, too complicated to go into here. Shortly after he got hired, he got a raise and his raise um, put his salary substantially above mine. It devastated me because I thought they really liked me. And I, I was very confused, you know? I mean, I had this, what, it was my first job. I was totally committed to this company. It was a real emotional relationship for me. And they demonstrated their non-caring and non-value of me. I really, um, it, it was like, you know, it was as though someone died. Couldn't eat or sleep for several days. It was, it was a 
huge, huge, huge reaction. Um, and eventually, you know, I got through it. Um, eventually, I, first I looked around for other jobs. Then I finally went to my boss and said, you know, what's going on? <laughs> um, he arranged a raise for me because they really did value me, or at least they didn't want me to leave. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Um, but it did not really occur to me until I was writing the book, the most obvious thing about this, which is which was that he was a man and I was a woman or, you know, a young woman at the time too, although he was also young. I just, I didn't really think about it. I didn't really look at it and I didn't want to see it because if I had seen it, then this company that I so enjoyed working for and so valued and felt valued by, I would have had to do something about that, I think. I think a lot of the time we deliberately don't see it. We don't look at it because it'll hurt us. It's, it's painful. It's, it's painful. We're, we're in these relationships with our companies. We're in these relationships at home. And to say, you know, I'm not being treated equally here, which comes up so much if you stop and look at it, it's very hard. And then you, you uh, get the response that I occasionally get from my husband, which is, oh, that's all you care about. You know, like if somebody, somebody uses he as a generic term for all people, I'm kind of like, okay, you're not talking about me and you're not talking to me. And my husband is, just rolls his eyes. It's like, all right, that's all you care about. Well, you know, yeah, <laughs> kind of. It's yeah. something I do care about. <laughs> um, so, the, so the question, the challenge is to see it, to endure the pain that it sometimes takes of seeing it and figure out how to be in the world anyway and figure out how to push back gently and move the needle when we can. Um, and not sink into despair. And it's hard. It's really hard. So because it's hard, we choose not to see it. So I guess the first thing is to choose to see it. Yeah, I mean, it's that's the first step in any change is awareness. We have to notice. We have to notice it to do something about it. That's an interesting story about your boyfriend getting the raise and you didn't even realize that it was an inequality of male, female, them not, not treating you fairly because of your gender. You know, like all such things, there's always other factors to all these questions. So there's always an explanation of why, you know, he might've gotten a raise and I didn't, but did that factor into it? I suspect that it did, but I only suspect that now. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And if I, if I had said, Hey, you know, you gave him this raise because he's a man. Nobody would have said, oh, yes, that's why we did it. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think they have the consciousness, right? They're they're not even the consciousness and it's illegal, right? So if you you straight out accuse them of it, they're not going to say that that's what happened. But it's um, it's part of the mix and part of the subconscious for all of us, I think. Yeah, I remember during my marriage, I, I started to find my voice more and more. And there was one time when my car... I had just moved to a new house with a a two-car garage and I wasn't used to the space between the two sides of my car. And the first time I went into the garage, one of the first times I ended up hitting the mirror on my side, my side view mirror on the right side. And it went into the door, into the passenger door. So we brought it to the dealer and the dealer was a friend of my ex-husband's family. And he said, oh, you know, we'll replace the door, we'll replace the mirror, and the insurance was supposed to pay for it. So I go to pick up the car. It was so obvious to me that he had not replaced the door. He had just fixed the door. And I said something because I do speak up. And so he was gaslighting me. Like, I, I'm the crazy mm-hmm. one. And not only to me, 
but also to my ex-husband's family, like Sandy's nuts. And I remember just being so enraged that somebody would do that to me. And I felt so powerless. And I, I, when I got divorced, one of the things that I really focused my energy on as I, as I became a life coach was communication and boundaries. Those two areas, and I think women, women really don't do well in either one of those. Really, like we had a, a, a woman in my Facebook group the other day who was talking about saying to her boyfriend, I'm tired. And she kept repeating, I'm tired. And she had just gotten over COVID and she was exhausted. So they had gone out somewhere and he kind of heard her, but didn't really hear her. And he kept kind of pushing her to go further, further, further. And so after like five times, I'm tired, she snapped and then he got really mad at her. And so she writes about this in my Facebook group, what to do. And everybody's like, well, I don't know. This sounds like red flags. And I'm like, did you ever make a direct request that I'm tired and I want to go home? Like that part was missing. And so, you know, yes, it would be nice if somebody heard I'm tired and said, oh, let's go home and take care of you. But we don't often make requests. We just say how we feel. And learning to say how we feel and make direct requests and set boundaries and speak up is something that most people lack the skills for. Yes, and I, I think maybe um, in, in that instance, maybe people, not just women, although women probably have that particular problem, maybe more. But um, yeah, I, it's it's one of the things that I actually write about. There's, I kind of compared it to the Cinderella complex. We all remember the Cinderella complex back when, <laughs> back in, in the days of the dinosaur. <laughs> and, um supposedly two people could live on one salary. And um, so therefore women grew up thinking they didn't really need to understand money or save or plan for their retirement or anything because some man was going to come along and take care of them and, and handle all that for them. And I think, you know, we've evolved past that. Um, but I think there's some kind of universal um, similar thing going on where we think that if we really put out 110% of effort and we really do everything for everyone and we really please everyone and make everyone happy, um, they'll figure out what we need and they'll put the same effort into making us happy. And then, you know, and then we feel very um, frustrated and angry when that doesn't happen. So, you know, I think, I think you have a point. Um, now, had she said, I want to go home and, and he didn't agree to that, then yes, it absolutely is a red flag. Um, absolutely, yes. But, <laughs> but you're right. You have to actually say what you want and you have to actually know what you want and you have to actually take action to create what you want. Yes. All of those steps are important. And, you know, what you just said about putting the 110% out and then hope, hoping that somehow they'll, they'll recognize you for it or they'll step up too. And what I have found is the opposite is true, that the more we do, the less somebody else has to do. And so it kind of becomes this really uneven playing field. And I grew up with the um, over-functioning, under-functioning dynamic between my parents. My mother would over-function, my father would under-function. Under and I did the same thing in my marriage, it, which is not shocking at all. And I had to learn to step back, 
to not, you don't just lean back in a relationship and just hope that something will change like we were saying before, but it's, it's really important to say, here's where I need your support, or here's, here's what I'm willing to do. Here's what I'm not willing to do. Here's what, you know, what, what are you willing to do? And to have these conversations with people, whether it's at work or at home, and really not just expect that you do it all, you know, and even with my children, now that they're grown and I have grandkids, I am very clear with what I will and won't do. You know, I am not the grandma who's going to be like taking off work and babysitting all day and every day. That's not me. It's not going to be me. It's not what I choose to do. It's not what I'm good at. It's not a good use of my time and energy, but they know that when I am there, I'm present. I want to be with them. Whatever I give them is from my heart and I do have limits and I think they appreciate it so much more than if I just said, here, use my credit card whenever you want. Mm-hmm. We, we create those dynamics. We, we do. And I think what I've learned with the difficulty in my own life um, is that this, this isn't necessarily, wouldn't necessarily work at work, but in your own life, in your own household, when we're in your own family where you are we hope, surrounded by people who love you and care about you, to say, you know, I really need your help is magical. And I don't think we do it enough because it feels like weak or whiny or something. And, you know, and it, it can't be, you know, I really need your help because you're useless around here. I'm facing something that's big and I would really like your help with it. You know, I think people respond to that. Absolutely. And it, it does, it feels needy to people, I think very much like it's weak to have to ask. I grew up with the, the philosophy that if somebody loves me, they'll know, <laughs> they'll yeah, just be able right. to read my mind. Right? Yep. That does not work. Spoiler no, it really alert. Does. <laughs> right. A surprising number of us, even me sometimes, um, you know, expect that, that even though it's never worked for us before, expected <laughs> right. to start working any moment now. Right, any moment. If you have ever played small to make other people feel comfortable, or maybe stayed in a bad relationship or job too long because you didn't think you could do any better, I wrote a book for you. It's called Becoming a Woman of Value, How to Thrive in Life and Love. Each of the 30 chapters contains a life lesson, a story, and an exercise to bring you closer to reaching your full potential. Becoming a Woman of Value is available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle. Tell us a little bit about what's going on for you now in the present. Um, We haven't really talked that much about the book and we talked around it, but like, why did you write the book? What are you hoping people will take away from the book? I write a column for the Inc. Magazine website called The Laidback Leader, and I've been doing that for more than a decade. And what's really fun about it, um, I I pretty much get to pick my own topics, and um, I write about all sorts of things. But I started writing about um, productivity and work-life balance and kind of some of the things that I talk about in the book and sort of some of the things that we talk about here. The thing about writing online is that you can find out in real time whether people are interested or not in a particular topic because they click on it, they share it. And, you know, if you're, you have the analytics, you can see that. So what I saw was that there was actually really quite a lot of interest in these topics about um, how to, you know, this is, this is my, 
my one sentence description of the book, how to uh, have a great career and a happy life without making yourself miserable in the process, which I think so many of us do. The more I wrote about those topics, the more I experimented on myself with all the things I was learning about how to be more productive and more mindful and um, less crazy <laughs> around work. The more I wrote about it, the more people were interested in it. It sort of kind of grew up into a book. And I thought, you know, there's really, there's, there's a lot more to say here. And there's a lot of exploring that I want to do in a way that you can't in a 500 to a thousand word column. So um, I started looking at it and, um, and that's how the book appeared. Um, what I'd love people to get out of it is the thing that we don't necessarily always have the time and the bandwidth to do in our real lives, which is kind of look at the big picture of our whole lives and our whole careers and how we want those things to fit together because so much of the time we're in you know, the present and we need to be, and we're planning for the future, but we haven't really stopped to say, okay, where is this really leading me? How much does this really matter? That's one of the biggest things I want people to get out of the book. People really struggle with career and life balancing. How do I, how do I do this? I mean, my daughter was saying, I think my husband would do really well if he took off a year and didn't have to deal with kids or me. And I thought, yeah, that would be um, great for his career growth, but it's going to take away from his desire to be with family. And it's like, how do you have it all? How do you do what you need to do? I know for myself, I love working for me because I get to make all the choices and I don't have to deal with any you know, bosses who are uh, treating me unequally. It's, it's just me. And it's me just having the ability to hustle and market and, and create this career. But I also get to go for a walk in the middle of the day and I went with my grandkids to a children's museum this morning and was able to get back to work. So it's designing. I, I've spent a lot of time in mindfulness designing the life that I wanted to lead, where I had enough money to feel satisfied and balanced. And I think very few people that I know are able to really do that. I think all of that's true. I think, um, you know, I've worked for myself for many years also, and that does allow um, designing for work-life balance. It also, sometimes I think it works against work-life balance too, though, at least for me, because if I have an unreasonable deadline, I agree to it and, and it's, it's <laughs> difficult to go back and say to the boss, you know, hey, you're giving me too much work to do when the boss is me. But, um, <laughs> but I think that, that even as contractors, um, it's easy enough to be treated unequally. And I have had that happen. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, um, I'm not sure that being self-employed is necessarily complete protection against that. Although, you know, it's always nice that you can walk away from a client a lot more easily than you can walk away from a job when it's your whole job. I think the thing about work-life balance is this. So in the, in the moment, on a, on a given day, you know, I mean, this morning you decided to take some time off from work and take your, your children to the children's, your grandchildren rather, to the children's museum. And you could have spent those couple of hours doing something that would further the reach of your podcast or bring you new, better playing 
paying clients or something, and you made that choice. And so in that moment, the two things were in opposition. But I think if you, once again, look at the big picture, um, the two things don't fight each other so much as feed each other. Because I found, and, and people, I think the smartest people realize this, that you actually need that time away from work and time with family and time doing things that fulfill you, like going to a museum or going out in nature, which has um, enormous benefits of all sorts, um, to be as effective as you could be at the work that you do. So in the bigger picture, um, you know, work-life balance suggests that when one is up, the other is down. Um, in fact, when you do well at both, you're, you're better at both. And you kind of um, said that before about, you know, about the grandmother that you are and aren't willing to be because you value your work and your profession and your place in the world um, as a public figure. Um, and then when you're with your children and your grandchildren, you truly want to be there and it nourishes you and them. Yeah, I, I don't feel when I'm doing something else that I should be doing work. I, I and I I did work in the morning before I left. So I, I you know I get my exercise in the morning and I do some work in the morning. So I, if I know I'm going to take some time off, I'm not sitting there thinking, oh, I have to get back. Like I was prepared for this podcast, not this morning, but a long time ago <laughs> when you first decided that you wanted to be on the podcast. I did all the things I needed to do so that I'd be prepared today. And so it's, it's, I think that, you know, organizing, having systems, um, making conscious choices. I think that being present to what you're doing when you're doing it is huge. And you mentioned mindfulness before, and I think mindfulness is such an important part of life. Just really taking the time. I mean, taking the time to also, you know, you mentioned the big picture, we often look at what we're not doing. We often look at what we could be doing. And I think if we can appreciate what we've accomplished, where we have gone, where we have been, what we have learned along the way, that's how we grow as people, not by thinking, oh, I have to just grind and hustle the rest of my life and, and then get to my dying day and say, well, I should have worked more because <laughs> nobody said that ever. No. Um, yes, as, as you may know, the, the um, hospice nurse who um, had made a habit of asking her dying patients what they regretted, uh, almost all the men said they regretted working as hard as they did. So that's a, that's a thing to think about, um, yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, one of the things that I think actually sort of, sort of brought this to mind, one of the exercises that I have in my book and something that I try to do myself every day is to just take like one minute or maybe even 30 seconds at the end of the day, right before you go to bed and write down what you accomplished that day. That's positive. So in other words, I'm be very susceptible to writing, um, wrote one column, even though I intended to write two, but you got, you got to kill the second half of that <laughs> sentence, right? Wrote a column, took a hike, did, took children to the museum, did whatever. Um, because I, so I so often, and so many of us so often come to the end of the day and think about what we didn't get done or, you know, what was I doing all day? I planned to do this and I didn't, I forgot or whatever. And if you actually write down what you did, um, first of all, you see why you maybe didn't do the other 
10 things that you thought you should have. But also, um, we reinforce our own accomplishments. And if you do it right before you go to sleep, you go to sleep on that sentiment of, okay, I did something useful today. Even if that useful thing was, I took a day off and really relaxed and lay in the hammock and read, because we need to spend a day doing that sometimes too. Um, so anyway, that's an exercise, one of the many exercises in my book, and um, one that I think is really helpful for this kind of thing. I love that. I, I love exercises. I think it's really important to share. And yeah, we do tend to go, even though, um, what if, if only, instead of just appreciating and having some compassion for ourselves. And I think it's true for anything we do, including um, trying to lose weight. And then we eat something and we say, I ate pretty well, except for, and then mm -hmm. we focus on the thing right. that we should. And it was, it was cheating. And now that I ate that, it doesn't matter. So I'll eat everything else, right? Exactly. The entire refrigerator. And so <laughs> I think just being kind to ourselves and just really treating ourselves with more compassion and kindness is super important. All right. So Minda, the future, what is the future? What, what does that look like for you? This book just came out. So I have all kinds of high hopes from it. I'm starting to do more public speaking, more workshops. Um, I have a workshop coming up actually at the end of August with um, for the Professional Independent Consultants of America, which is free and which people are welcome to join. So I'm happy to provide a link to that too, if you would like. Um, so that's the, that's the immediate future. Uh, beyond that, you know, I'm really having fun writing the column so that you know, I'll always do that until, you know, until they kick me out or I die in my dresses. <laughs> um, and there may be some other books someday, but uh, that's, you know, to, to be, that's a, to be announced later on. Um, right now, I'm just so happy that this book is finally out and people are really reacting to it nicely and they seem to really love it and value it. It just makes oh, me so that's happy. That's great. Well, good luck with the book and all that you're doing for it. And it's, it's also really important when you finish a book to stay in that moment and not be on to the next thing. I tend to be right. like, oh, I finished my book. Okay, what's next? So it's it's really just, it, it's not easy to just say I'm done for now and I'm gonna work on staying with this and selling this book and speaking. Right. <laughs> All right, we're ready for the lightning round. Uh, fill in the blank. I used to think I wasn't blank enough. I used to think I wasn't a good enough writer. I thought I was serviceably good, but not a top-notch writer. Mm. And I don't know why. Because you're human. And <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> no, but I mean, I knew like other people. I thought, oh, that's a really good writer, but not me. I don't know why I thought that. I, I did that with my art. Um, if you look at the table behind me, if people are watching on video, I, I painted this table. I used to paint furniture and I was an artist a working artist until I became a coach. And I used to think, well, anybody could do this. You know, this is this is super easy. Anybody could do this. Uh -huh. And I didn't appreciate it until I was much older. So I think, you know, doing it and then looking around and going, oh, that person's work is not so good. I'm, I'm pretty good at this. <laughs> yep. What was the number one thing holding you back from becoming a woman of value? My own limited understanding of how the world works. I think I started out 
sort of sheltered and naive and I had a lot of learning to do, probably more than most people do when I you know, came out into the world and started working and started writing. Um, and you know, I still have a lot of learning to do, I think. I think that uh, the only way to really advance in life is to have that growth mindset that we always have more to learn. What is the best advice you can give to a woman who wants to become more empowered? Do it for yourself. Figure out what makes you happy. I, when you're signing books, it's nice to have like some little tagline that you write. So I thought about it. And for this book, my tagline is make yourself happy because we actually have not just the right to be as happy as we can be or to make ourselves as happy as we can, but also interestingly, the responsibility to be happy because research shows that happier people are just better people, better people in the world, less likely to commit crimes, more likely to volunteer, better civic members of society, certainly better coworkers and absolutely better bosses. So figure out what makes you happy and then make that happen because everything will be better if you do. I totally agree with that. What advice would you give to your younger self? Wow, I I thought about that one a lot. Um, in, In essence, I mean, one answer to that question is the entire book is what I wish I had realized and known 30 years ago. Um, But if I had to put it into one sentence, it would be, don't worry about it all so much. It's really going to be okay. What is something that people get wrong about you? I think people think because I'm in this position, particularly now with a book and I have this audience of people who get a daily text from me and I write the column and I'm always um, in the position of kind of telling people how to live their lives. I mean, I guess you, you, your work is to do that too. And I think that people find it helpful and I, I think that I am helpful, but that doesn't mean that all the decisions I make are good ones or that I've never really screwed up. I've screwed up very, very badly in all kinds of ways. So um, I'm human and vulnerable and as liable to really mess up as the next person. And even so I can provide some helpful insight into how to manage the whole work-life thing and how to manage, you know, your job. So um, you don't have to be, I guess, perfect in order to be helpful. I think people get that wrong a lot about a lot of people. I think they tend to put people on a pedestal, people who are giving out some good advice to people, even therapists, they think, oh, they should have perfect lives and their family should be perfect. And you don't need to have everything together all the time in order to be helpful. And the other part of it is, I think that knowing that people screw up is actually helpful to the people who are taking advice because it gives them permission to not be perfect because nobody's perfect. Right. Yeah. There's a, a thing in the first chapter where I like have this whole long list of all the things that, that are messed up in my life right now, beginning with the, you know, if you could see my kitchen. So, <laughs> so permission to have a messy kitchen. Yes. Permission to have a messy kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Self-compassion again, really important to be kind to ourselves and not expect perfection. And finally, Minda, how would you like to be remembered? Oh, 
I'd like to be remembered for having seen a couple of things that maybe weren't obvious to everyone and shared those. It's beautiful. I mean, it's it's just very humble that you've seen a couple things and you've helped people see them. <laughs> it's rare for people to see things that others can't see. And it's what sets people apart that you have a perspective and you can see things and you can help people open their perspective. And I think that's really powerful. I guess, but I also think a lot of people have a perspective that, that the rest of us don't. So it's sometimes articulating that is the challenge maybe. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this. This has been a fabulous conversation. If you can share how people can find you. Probably the best one source would be to come to my website, um, www.mindazetland.com because from there you can find links to everything, to the book, to the ink column, to the text, um, the text if you're interested in that. Well, thank you again for coming on the show and sharing this important conversation with my audience. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad that you invited me. And thanks everybody for listening. If you love our show, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and have a great day. If you would like to step more fully into your value, grab a free copy of The Ultimate Guide to Becoming a Woman of Value on my website, thewomanofvalue.com. Just click the link at the top of the homepage. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to click the subscribe button in your listening app. And if there's something in this episode that inspired you, please share it with others. Because the more we share these inspirational stories, the more women of value we will have in this world. I'll see you next time.